Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Great. Good. Well, everywhere you go, different things are preaching different messages to you. Everything around you preaches some kind of news to you. TV shows that you watch, advertisements on the TV, the internet, the clothes that people wear, billboards around, all are saying some kind of message to you. I wonder, what message do you speak of? And I wonder if that's the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you speak of this news to your friends, family, neighbors, workmates? If we're honest with ourselves, even if I'm honest with myself, we're so shy to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ. We tend to back away from sharing the great news of which we just sung about. There are many reasons why we tend to shy away from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here are a few of them. One is the fear of man. Perhaps we fear man too much. Another one is a lack of confidence. Or perhaps we just have a wrong idea of what it means to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, today's passage, you can turn there now, We'll be looking through Acts 3 uh, to chapter 4, verse 31. Well, that our passage will encourage us to proclaim the very good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. But to help us think through this passage, we will look at it in four parts. Healing in the name, proclaiming the name, persecution for the name, and prayer to speak the name. So, let me repeat those four again. Healing in the name, proclaiming the name, persecution for the name, and prayer to speak the name. So first, healing in the name. Um, this is found in verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. So at this point, Peter and John are both walking up to the temple. Uh, and as they're going to the temple, a layman is carried and laid down at the temple gate. And once the layman is laid down, the man begins to beg. He begins to ask for money from those around him. He begins to ask for help. And according to verse 4, uh, Peter looks at the man. He sees the man. Peter and John both look at him and Peter says to him, Look at us. Look at us, is what he says. As you would expect the layman looks back and he expects something in return. He expects to get some money for help. He expects to receive help. But notice what Peter gives him. Look at verse 6. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Can you guys imagine what the layman could have been thinking at this point? So here he is asking for money. Uh, and here a man comes to you and says, I don't have any money or gold, silver, none, none of that. But what I have is Jesus, and he can heal you. He, he probably is thinking, how insane are these people? I've been lame since birth. I've never walked. I've tried everything. But yet, Peter declares that this lame man will walk. 
So what's the result? What happens? Is the layman going to be healed? Look at verse 7. And Peter, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So the man is immediately healed. The man who had once been lame can now walk. In fact, if you continue to read, he begins to leap for joy. The impossible is made possible. But we have to ask the questions, but how? How has this happened? Look again in verse 6. The man is healed in the name of Jesus Christ. But what does this mean? What does it mean to be healed in the name of Jesus Christ? So first, what it does not mean. It's not a magical incantation. It's not sorcery that's going on. It's not a spell of healing. It's not as if that we proclaim the name of Jesus and immediately this thing will happen just because we say these words. That's not what's happening. So what is happening? Well, it is the authority of Jesus displayed for all to see. Peter is declaring Christ's power and authority over the physical realm and Jesus displays it by healing the man. See, though Jesus lived and died, was raised as we celebrated this Easter and ascended as we looked at the first chapter of Acts, Jesus hasn't left us to ourselves. He still now reigns and rules as king. He is present with his people. And that's good news for us. He is working through us to display his power and authority over everything. So what happens after this? Well, the man then begins to praise God. And as the man is praising God, a crowd begins to gather around. And they begin to wonder, what happened here? What caused this healing to happen? This is a point for us to learn. It tells us something about miracles. Miracles always require an explanation. We see this in Acts chapter 2. After everyone is speaking in different languages... Peter then begins to explain what happened. <clears throat> you see, miracles are to point our eyes to the one who has rescued. Miracles are used to point our eyes to Jesus Christ. Miracles, in this case a physical one, are not the end of God's work. God uses miracles to simply point us to the greater thing that he has done. So if there are miracles around us that are happening apart from the exaltation of Jesus Christ, there's something wrong. The point of miracles are to turn our eyes to him. Jesus, the one who accomplished our salvation. Yes, God can bring supernatural healing, but he's done something even better. He has rescued sinners from the hands of a holy and righteous God. Jesus has met humanity's greatest need at the cross. So, after this healing, Peter begins to explain the name of Jesus. What does it mean to proclaim the name of Jesus? So first we saw a healing in the name, and now we will see proclaiming the name. So this is found in verses 11 to 21. It's not all of Peter's sermon, but let me read verses 11 to 21. While he clung to Peter and John, all the peoples, utterly astounded, ran together to to them in the portico 
called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect help in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as also your rulers... But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So here we see Peter begins to preach a sermon. But notice that he doesn't simply say the man was healed in Jesus' name. He declares five key truths about who Jesus is. So first, the first truth that Peter declares is that Jesus is the servant of God who is glorified. Look at that in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. See, this phrase of a glorified servant would have reminded the people of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Listen to Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Jesus is the exalted servant of God. Jesus is the very servant that the Old Testament points to. Now, how is Jesus lifted high and exalted? Well, it's only through his life, death, and resurrection that we see his exaltation. So first, Jesus is the servant of God who is glorified. Second, Jesus is the Holy One. This is found in verse 14. Look at it with me. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. See, over and over again, the Holy One is a unique phrase used specifically for God Himself, for the God of Israel. Ezekiel 39, 7. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Psalm 71, 22. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre. O Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Your Savior. Friends, Jesus is the Holy One. Peter is declaring Jesus to be God Himself. Third, we see that Jesus um, is the Righteous One. Same verse, but you denied the Holy One and Righteous One. So what does this mean? What does it mean that Peter uses his word for Jesus? 
Well, it's found in Isaiah 52 and 53. Here it refers to a servant of God, specifically a servant, a suffering servant, a man. See, Jesus was a man just like you and I. He lived like you and I. He grew up. He was born. He was as human as can be. He thirsted and hungered. But yet he was also different. See, Jesus was a man who lived a completely blameless life. He loved God perfectly and loved others perfectly. He obeyed all of God's commands, unlike you and I. So here in verse 14, Peter is declaring Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Fourth, Jesus is the author of life. So you see this in verse 15, when Peter tells his audience, and you killed the author of life. So here Peter just emphasizes that Jesus is God. Jesus is the very author of life. He is the very one who created you and I. He is the very God who created everything we see and everything we don't see. And he is even the very creator of those who even crucified him. All things around us find their being in him. In Jesus. And Jesus is alive. Final point. Whom God raised from the dead. Verse 15. Did the people succeed in killing God's holy and righteous servant? The answer is no. God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's good news for us. Because it shows his death was accomplished for our salvation. And it shows us that he is alive and he is living and ruling as the ruling, living Savior. So we have seen Jesus to be the glorified servant of God. We've seen him to be the Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life. And though he suffered and died, he is risen and is alive. Peter also, he doesn't only talk about five exaltations of Jesus. He begins to address the audience's guilt. Look with me at verses 13 to 14. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. The Jews deliver Jesus. And they deny him in the presence of Pilate. They choose a murderer over the very author of life. And they kill the very author of their own lives. See the Jews are guilty of the very murder of God. The Jews have blood on on their hands and they are guilty Before God himself. That seems kind of grim. Is that all of Peter's sermon? It's great for us to know that it's not. That's not the end of the sermon. He doesn't just leave um, his audience in condemnation. But look with me at verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be forgiven. That your sins may be blotted out. Peter gives his audience a hope for forgiveness. He gives them a hope to be made right with God. Can there really be forgiveness for the very murderers of God himself? The answer is a yes from Peter. He called them that your sins can be forgiven. Notice that Peter does not say 
Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. No, it's a sure forgiveness. And it's a forgiveness that was prophesied from the very beginning through God's prophets. You see this in verse 13 when he alludes to 50, Isaiah 52 and 53. It's also seen in verses 18 and 20 to 26. Moses, Samuel, Abraham, all the prophets of God all point to Jesus. But how is this forgiveness made possible? How can the very murderers of God be forgiven of their wicked sin? Turn with me to Isaiah 53, 36. We read this earlier. But this is how God has accomplished this great exchange and this great salvation. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ on the cross takes upon himself the very sins of his people. He takes upon himself the very judgment of God that you and I deserve. Remember the story that Peter accounts of Barabbas? And this is just a perfect picture of what Jesus is about to do. It's almost a living parable of Jesus' death. Because in it we see Jesus, the only righteous one of God, being treated as a criminal. He is condemned to die a criminal's death. And yet at the same time we see a criminal, Barabbas, a murderer, go free. Um, What a picture of the gospel. Do you see God's amazing grace displayed in Jesus? That the cross can even bring forgiveness to Jesus' very own murderers. Don't you long for this kind of forgiveness? Oh, I hope that you would turn to him and trust to him. Listen to Peter say to you, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. But perhaps you don't. See, it's so easy to disconnect our sin from the sins of the Jews. Perhaps you don't see yourselves like the Jews, that you haven't murdered God. You haven't killed the author of, your, the author of life. You haven't committed their sin. But if we believe that, Friends, we are only lying to ourselves. Listen to what John Stott writes in The Cross of Christ. This is such a humbling uh, passage. Listen to what he writes. If we were in their place, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priests, to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old African-American spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were there. 
Not as spectators only, but as participants. Guilty participants plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his. For there is blood on our hands. Before we can see the cross as done as something done for us, which leads us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. So if you're a non-believer here, and if you've wondered, can God really forgive me? Can God really forgive me of my sin? The answer is yes. He has paid for it at Calvary. Oh, God is telling you now, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. For those who continue to reject him, there's only judgment. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. But for those who trust in him and turn away from sin, there is the hope of forgiveness of sin and a life with God. Verse 19. And there is also the hope of Jesus' return. Verses 20 to 22. Friends, there will be a time when all things will be restored. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow or hurt. There will be no more sin in your life or in this world. And we will live eternally with the very God who loves us and has rescued us by his death. So if you are a believer here, be encouraged. Be amazed at God's amazing grace displayed in Christ. Never lose sight of this hope that we have. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is the news that we are called to proclaim to those around us. So we saw a healing in the name, and then we just saw proclaiming the name, and now we will see persecution for the name. So after Peter proclaims this message of hope, Peter and John both begin to experience persecution. This is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. According to verse 3, Peter and John are then arrested by the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, specifically for teaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus in the resurrection. And notice something really awesome, that despite this persecution for the name, many people still come to Christ. About 5,000 people still come to believe in Jesus. Do you see the power of God even in the midst of persecution? Well, after they're arrested the next day, all the rulers of the land of the Jews, all the scribes, elders and including the high priest and the high priestly family, all gathered together. They thought that they had put an end to the name of Jesus. They thought they had put an end to his name, finished, we killed it. But oh, they were wrong. So they begin to interrogate Peter and John. Look at what they ask them in verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? And look at, Peter's response, even in the midst of being persecuted, of being questioned, of being arrested, he begins to proclaim the name of Jesus once again. He begins to preach the gospel. 
He states that his audience is guilty of the very murder of the author of life. He declares that their rejection means that Jesus has become the very foundation of the faith. And he declares that salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. Oh, that the Pharisees were wrong in thinking that they had ended Jesus' reign. So, after Peter gives this mini-sermon, the rulers then gather together again. They, they wonder, what can we do? What can we now do with these people who we don't like? They can't, or they can't beat them because they've done a miracle. They, can't, they haven't done any wrong. They can't find any wrong done by the disciples. So according to verse 14, they just forbid them to teach and speak in the name of Jesus. However, again, the, the disciples are bold to answer back. Read to me from verses 19 to 21. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And what an astounding response. So in this passage, we see a picture of persecution. So it tells us a few things. One, it tells us that we as Christians will experience persecution for the name of Jesus. This is even clear as Jesus taught uh, in the Gospels. He clearly taught that his disciples will suffer for being Christians. But here in the States, persecution does look a little different, doesn't it? We aren't jailed for our faith. We aren't even beaten for our faith. We aren't put to death for our faith. But there are those who will judge you for being a Christian. There are those who will reject you, perhaps friends and family who will reject you for your faith. In fact, maybe some of you in this room have experienced that rejection. All of us here will face it at one time or another. This is to be expected and it shouldn't surprise us. So perhaps some ways that we fall into believing what they tell us to not speak the name of Jesus are, for example, never talk religion or politics at the dinner table. It's one way that our culture shows us that they don't want us to speak the name of Jesus. Or perhaps forbidding us to tell someone's belief is wrong. And that there is only one way to God. This is another lie that our world tells us. There are ways that our community tells us to keep our good news to ourselves. They tell us to keep quiet about what we have seen and what we have heard. So what should encourage us in the midst of this? What should encourage us in the midst of persecution? This narrative tells, gives us three encouragements. First, that there is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. So the world has its saviors. We see it every day. Perhaps they don't think it's the Savior to save them from the wrath of God. But they see it as being saved from depression, poverty, sadness. They say that money will save them. That all they need is a big house and a white picket fence. That all they need is to just look like this. All they need is to be rich and they'll be fine. But all are just lies that will just leave them 
under God's righteous judgment. So what can save them? It's only the very good news of Jesus Christ. So friends, let us bring that news to a world that has false saviors and let us point to them, to the only savior who could save them, who has died for their sins at the cross. So that's the first one, that there is only one savior, Jesus Christ. The second one is that we must fear God above man. God calls us to proclaim the gospel boldly, yet we might be despised. But it's not about us. It's not about what others will think about us. It's about what others will think about God. It's about the glory of God being displayed. And it's about being obedient to God above fearing what man can do to us. Third, come see the glory of Christ. John and Peter cannot speak of what they have heard. You can see this clearly at the end of Peter's reply. We cannot speak. We cannot help ourselves but speak of what we've seen and heard. So have you seen the glory of Jesus Christ? Have you seen the gospel? Friends, here's fuel for our declaration of the gospel. That you would rest in him. That you would see his glory displayed. That you would see your need of him. And that, that, that would just give you fuel to preach the gospel to those around you. That it would just give you joy to preach the gospel. So we have seen a healing in the name. Proclaiming the name. Persecution for the name. And finally, prayer to speak the name. This is found in verses 23 to 32. So after the disciples are released, they go back to their friends, and they report everything that happened. And look at the disciples' prayer. Let's read verses 24 to 28 together. So they pray to a sovereign Lord. This is their prayer. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, Said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand. And your plan had predestined to take place. Friends, we worship a God who is sovereign over everything. He has created everything around us and sustains everything around us. He was even in control of the very crucifixion of his son. Did you see that in verse 28? Though the nations raged in vain and tried to kill Jesus, they did not succeed. For the very murder of Christ brings forgiveness to the whole world. So we serve a God who is even in control of our very proclamation of the gospel. We see this as the disciples pray for boldness in verses 29 to 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. Do you see the focus of the prayer? 
The focus of the prayer is to speak the word with boldness. Where did Peter's boldness come from? Did it come from himself? No, it did not. God says it came through the power of the Spirit. If you look back to chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Peter was empowered by a sovereign God who empowered him to proclaim the gospel boldly. And look what God does to, in response to the disciples' prayer. Verse 31, And when they had prayed in the place in which they gathered together was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Oh church, we should be encouraged. That God has given us a command to proclaim the gospel. He has given us the means to proclaim the gospel by the Spirit, through the Spirit. And He is the one who will accomplish that command. This is good news for us. So I wonder how often we pray this prayer. How often do you pray this prayer like the disciples? That God would be the one who would help us preach the gospel boldly. Let us as a church commit ourselves to pray that we might be bold proclaimers of the gospel to those around us, to those in our church, in our workplace, to our neighbors, in our school. Let us pray that God would empower us by the Spirit to be bold preachers of the gospel. And let us not just pray for ourselves, but let us pray for one another. How often do you pray for the pastors of this church that they would be Faithful to the word and that they would boldly proclaim the word every Sunday. So let us commit ourselves to pray for them as well. That they too would speak boldly like Peter did. So I, I pray that we would be unashamed to proclaim this great message that we have heard. I pray our eyes would be set on Christ. And that it would lead us to trust in a sovereign God who has rescued us through the death of his son. Let's pray. Father, you have rescued us through a great salvation that you would come and die on our behalf, though we are guilty like the Jews, that we too have sinned against you, but yet you have shown us amazing grace in the cross. Oh, Father, may this lead us to proclaim boldly the gospel in the midst of persecution. May it lead us to proclaim the gospel boldly to our neighbors, friends, family. Let us be unashamed of what Christ has done. Fill us with joy. Cause us to behold Jesus and let us see and hear his powerful work done at Calvary. In your son's name.